0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we are joined by Alicia Fernandez Miranda, who's here to share about her new book, My What If Year, a Memoir. Welcome to the show, Alicia. Thank you so much for having me, Christina. I am so glad you're here and that we get to talk about this book and about the importance of all the what ifness that's in the book. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? I will. So, I am a Miami native uh, from
1: a Cuban American family. And currently I'm talking to you from the very remote Isle of Skye in Scotland, which is where I spend a lot of my time. And if you read my book, you'll learn a lot more about that journey from Miami to this uh, sometimes cold and often rainy place. Um, but uh, I was a CEO of my own business for many years. My, most of my career was spent in the philanthropy And women's empowerment space, so advising companies and individuals on how to give and how to give better. I built a company with my husband and was running that for a long time uh, until I decided that I needed to try something entirely different and made a plan to spend a year taking internships at all the jobs I wanted to do when I was a kid. So going from CEO to intern in one fell swoop um, and writing this book about it. And through the course of that, pretty much changed my entire professional life and certainly my outlook on a lot of life.
0: The book takes us through how you got to making that leap about taking a what-if year and about thinking about the roads not traveled. You had done an internship in college. Where you'd gone to the UK and, and spent a little time looking at theater in a, in a small town. Can you tell us about one of your first internships before we dive into the ones you tried in the book?
1: Sure. I will tell you about my very first internship was even, it was before college actually. Um, so when I was a senior in high school, I had an as an internship kind of credit for a semester. And I went to work at Ocean Drive magazine. Ocean Drive is a Miami-based luxury and lifestyle magazine. It's like one of these really thick kind of glossies that's 90% ads and um, stories about celebrities and fashion trends and all sorts of great things. At least it was in the late 90s, early 2000s. I think it's probably pretty similar now. Um, And I was pretty sure at that stage of my life that I wanted to be a journalist. I was editor of my school newspaper. I had been accepted on something um, called the news team for Teen People Magazine. It was like teenage reporters that were able to write for Teen People Magazine. So I kind of had like all my eggs in that basket. I was going to be a journalist and this was a big stepping stone for me. Ocean Drive was one of the only kind of big nationally read uh, glossy magazines that was operating out of Miami. So I got this internship and was like beyond excited to do it. Um, and the actual work was, um, you know, like, like an intern's work. Everybody gave me this stuff on their plate they uh, didn't have time for. There was a lot of filing. I spent most of my time filing galellas, which are like these tiny slides. I'm sure it's all digital now. But when a paparazzi would go out and take photos of a celebrity, like let's say coming out of a coffee shop. And then they would sell all of those photos to an agency and they would produce these teeny tiny, uh, almost like microfilm slides with all these pictures of celebrities and uh, Ocean Drive had stacks and stacks and stacks of unfiled ones that I needed to organize by celebrity and date and then file in these little plastic sleeves. That was like the majority of my job. and. While I was there, uh, most of the people who worked there that I spoke to were very unhappy with their jobs. And one woman who was the assistant editor at the time actually said to me, whatever you do in your career, do not go into journalism. You'll never get paid any money. It's, uh, you know, this is like a just it's cutthroat. People are constantly going to stab you in the back. And you know this is the worst possible profession that you could be in so stay far away so as as a result i did not end up going into journalism but i think internships are good for both learning what you do and don't want to do
0: and you you take us into that in the early part of the book and then your next internship that you tell us about when you were still a young person was the one where you went to the uk yeah, that was more of a, vo- I think it'd be
1: lofty to call it an internship. That was more of a volunteer um, a volunteer role, but uh, there, I, I was desperate to travel. I did not travel growing up. I left the country for the first time when I was 18. And as soon as I did, I just was like, actually, if there was a travel bug to bite me, that's exactly what happened to me. I decided that travel needed to be at the center of my life. I wanted to spend any money I made on travel and I wanted to be You know, overseas and exploring different places I had never been for as long as I possibly could. And so in college, the easiest way to do that on a budget was uh, at the time, it was a volunteer kind of effort. You sort of paid. I think it was like 200 dollars to get a volunteer placement and then um the placements were advertised from countries all over the world it was everything from you could go build a castle in estonia or you could uh volunteer on a farm in israel or you could do what i did which was work at a summer camp in the northeast of england in a small town called stanley um so it was a Uh, play, they call it a play scheme. It was like a summer camp outside of school for kids at the community center. Um, The kids were ranging in age from about six to maybe 12 or 13. And the volunteers were half local uh, teenagers and sort of people in their twenties. And then half um, people who were like me, who came for an experience all over from all over the world. And we slept on the mat, we slept on mats on the floor of the gym and um, hung out together uh, all day and all night. And just had this like incredible international experience working with people from all around the world.
0: The book is a memoir. So while it opens when you're about 40 years old and thinking you need to take some time to explore yourself and some roads not taken, we also get glimpses of you in times past as you think about who you were and where you are now. And part of what you do is you take us back and give us glimpses of who you were in college and how you worried so much and and who you were in high school. You had had a strong love of theater, but different cultural influences at our high school uh, dissuaded you from that. And then in college, you were so worried about your GPA and your future. And we see you again when you're 23 and you've got what should be a dream job, but you don't like it. And one of your friends asks you if you're happy. Why, when you're 40 and you're looking at going forward, are some of those moments in the past so important to look back on? Gosh, that's a great
1: question, Christina. I I think, you know, in the process of, of crafting this story, so taking my experience from, you know, a set of here's what I did this day and here's what I did this day and here's what I did this day into something that could actually be a narrative and a story that I was telling You know, as I was reliving, as I was living through some of these moments, you know, in the current times in my forties, you know, I kept thinking back to decisions that I had made moments that I had had and, and places where I had made a decision, there was a fork in the road and I took one route and I, as a result, I didn't take the other route. And all of those things kept coming back to me in the process of writing this, you know, I really had to reflect on those past moments because they were absolutely critical to how i had gotten to where i was today you know every choice that i made to take a job or to turn down a job to you know take it learn a new skill or to not to move or to stay in one place all of those things you know are what got me on the path that i was on but there were all of these other paths that i didn't take and that i hadn't maybe thought that much about until i was sort of going through this period of my life where i felt like i was at this pinnacle of my career uh, and at a relatively young age. And I had worked so hard to get there and I was not happy and I wasn't satisfied. I felt stuck. I felt depressed. And in order to try to figure out why that had happened, I started thinking about these inflection points, these points of choice, these forks in the road in my life where I made one decision over another and could not help but thinking what might have happened if I did something else if I had taken another route.
0: And that comes across in the title, My What If Year. For listeners who haven't heard about or or read the book yet, what would be your, your elevator pitch or your synopsis of this book?
1: So My What If Year is my memoir, and it's the story of how as a successful CEO, I decided to leave my job and go try out internships at all the dream jobs of my childhood, things I always wanted to do. And never got a chance to do and I spent a year doing that and that year just happened to be 2020 so it's also a pandemic story I think uh unexpectedly so
0: and as the book opens you as we've mentioned you're you know in in midlife uh as we perhaps haven't touched on yet you have a partner you have children you've mentioned you have a wonderful job and it's not a midlife crisis book It's a time of reflection and consideration, and you take us through all of that. But you also show us how it's not easy once you make the decision to go ahead and do it. You have to tell your children's school that you don't want to be on the parent board. You have to figure out what you let your clients know at work, and you have the work of applying for internships. Can you take us through that? You've made the decision, and now you want to try to launch it. What does it take to do that?
1: So... I mean, I think the first there was almost like eight or nine months of getting over the emotional hurdles to making a decision to do this. That was a big part of this. And um, the point between when I had the idea and when I actually started taking any action, you know, it, it took a while for me to get to that point, because, as you say, I had had and have a husband who I love. I have kids, I had a job and a number of responsibilities that I didn't feel like I could just leave. Um, you know, I could not eat my eat pray love my way out of this situation as much as I wanted to. Um, there was no like leaving everything behind. You know, I had to, I had, if I was going to do this, once I decided, okay, I'm going to do this, then I needed a plan to address all of the practical barriers of which there were many. So because I was running my own business, you know, that was a big piece of it. I had to figure out how I was going to be able to keep the business going and afloat and not sacrificing and not putting the, you know, financial health of the business. And of course, all the people that worked for the business and, and depended on it at risk. It was something that my husband and I had built over 10 years, you know, and, and it still meant a lot, even if I didn't think I wanted to be doing that job anymore. So, you know, I had to figure out what the right message was, how I was going to explain this, like, slightly off the beaten path idea to my clients who, you know, really couldn't understand, I think for the most part, why I wanted to do it. But, uh, you know, every, everybody got different pieces of information. So with clients, it was, I'm taking a series of mini sabbaticals, you know, here's the team that's going to be making sure nothing gets dropped while I'm gone. And if you need me, here's my phone number. You can email me anytime, you know, I was off, but I was still on. So there was that kind of set of things. And then, you know, my life had a whole host of other obligations. I was on the parent council of the twins school. I had been doing that for three or four years. I had set up a social enterprise that was an app focused on sustainable fashion. I was on the board of several different organizations. Um, I just, I volunteered for so many things. I had filled my life with so many things that made it so busy that there was never, ever time to think. So even though it's not a midlife crisis book, you know, the second I stopped being so busy or I let myself stop and think, I realized maybe I am in a little bit of a crisis mode and need to figure that out. So there was a big, big chunk of time of making space, going to all of these people, again, explaining what I wanted to do, you know, saying no to things, not renewing, my responsibilities where there were, you know, where it was time to leave the board, but please, please, could I stay for a little bit longer? You know, saying no had always been really hard for me. It still is hard for me now, even after going through this experience and learning so much, but I knew that I could not kind of throw myself into this other project without doing that. So that process also took maybe about six months of making the practical space in my life to be able to do this. And then at the same time, I started looking for internships. I had a resume that included Harvard, where I went to undergrad, and the London School of Economics, where I did my master's. I had been CEO. The company had been successful. You know, I had a lot of uh, really, you know, great things on that resume. And I wrote a cover letter that was, I thought, you know, very well-pitched, very humble, explaining what I was trying to do and really saying, you know, I I am willing to do anything to learn about this industry. I will get coffee. I will file. I will clean up trash. I will, I will literally do anything. There's nothing that you couldn't ask me to do. I just need a chance and an opportunity. And I started sending that out to any open internship I could find. I sent it out to everybody. I knew everybody who knew everybody I knew Um, And that took a long while because it was not easy with all of those things on my resume, with all that I was willing to put into it. You know, most of the people I reached out to cold did not even bother to respond. Um, If they did, it was a polite decline or like a form decline. Uh, And I did end up finally getting a few internships all through contacts through people that I knew.
0: You say in the book that As you were getting all these rejections, you had to tell yourself, it's a numbers game. It's a numbers game. And I appreciated that part of the book so much because so much of the media that we consume, whether it's a movie or a book that we read, skips over the boggy stuff. Like we want to know how did the person actually go forward or what um, what did they tell themselves so that they could? And that's where they sort of play the jaunty music and <laughs> skip,
1: exactly. skip what it montage. really felt like. There's a montage of like somebody's typing and next thing you know, they have an interview and next thing you know, they have a job.
0: <laughs> or she goes shopping for new outfits, which we get to see all of, but we don't know what actually happened <laughs> so that she got the job. For you, it it works out that you're going to get this internship in on Broadway. It, you're going to go to New York City. You're going to leave London. Can you take us to that?
1: Yes. So I, um, I have a friend of
0: mine's dad.
1: One of my best friend's father is John Weidman, who is a theater writer. He's also wrote for Sesame street for many years. Um, but you know, has an active career on and off Broadway and based in New York. So among my many, many, many points of outreach to many people, I reached out to John and I said, you know, here's what I'd like to do. Do you have any ideas of who I could reach out to? Is there anybody you'd be willing to introduce me to, you know, you know, me, you know, I'm going to work hard. So, you know, This would be incredible. And John absolutely delivered. He made two introductions for me um, to two incredible directors. One was James Lapine, who was working on a new uh, show for Broadway called Flying Over Sunset. It was uh, scheduled to open in April, 2021. Nope, April, 2020, that's the right year. And it did eventually open in 2021 after the long shutdown. Um, and then to John Doyle, who was directing a production of Assassins, which is a Stephen Sondheim show that was written by John Weidman himself. And this was going up at the Classic Stage Company an Off-Broadway Theater in the East Village in New York. And that was also scheduled to open in April of 2020. And so they both said, yes, you know, not sure if there's anything for you to do, but you're welcome to come and be part of the rehearsals and to maybe help out in the office and see what it is that you can do. Um, and, you know, within, within like 10 minutes of getting those emails, I like immediately booked flights, found an Airbnb, told, told, well, told my husband, this is going to happen. Um, I could not have been more excited. It was, it was probably not 10 minutes. It was a bit longer but it was really, really quick. I just I've always loved musicals since I was a kid. I never imagined I was ever gonna actually get to be part of one. So it was kind of a dream come true.
0: And you tell us about the wonderful place that you've rented and how it's going to be right next door to the theater. And I'm reading that, thinking, how do people plan their lives so well? Because when I go somewhere far away, it never, it never is as advertised. It wasn't exactly like that for you either. <laughs> Can you?
1: <laughs> oh, Christina! If only I had known then what I knew now. I mean, yes, like I. I'm such a planner in every aspect of my life. I, I just have almost, I think it's like probably a reaction to my parents being people that do not plan anything ever and are very like fly by the seat of their pants. And as a result, sometimes miss out on things. Like I hate the idea of missing something because I didn't plan soon enough or well enough or something like that. This is like absolutely something I need to work on with a, a therapist. Maybe this will be the subject of my next book, my compulsion for planning. I've gotten better at trying not to overplan my life. But the fact is that that's, there's like a little person running an Excel spreadsheet sitting inside my brain. So, you know, I was like, this is all going to be perfect. Everything is falling into place. And I found this Airbnb, it was a short walk from the classic stage company. I really, I'm not like claustrophobic, but I don't love going underground on the subway or the tube. I don't like being in that kind of crush of people during rush hour. And I I had lived in New York for a few years in my twenties and I just, I hated, I hated being on the subway to commute. So I was like, I need to be walking distance. This is so perfect. I found this adorable Airbnb, lots of light plants, you know, it was, it was so, it was really cute. And it was, you know, affordable for New York, which is a whole statement in and of itself. Um, And I was like, this is great. It's available for the whole time I'm there. I can walk over to the theater every day. Like, this is just, everything's working out. It's perfect. What could possibly go wrong? That's always
0: a terrible question.
1: I know, I know. And then it was everything, of course. But um, yeah, did not, did not, not as advertised, let's just say.
0: So you ended up (sighs) moving to a hotel that had wonderful cake for sale all the time. And you're interning on, it sounds like two productions at the same time, because they're in various stages of readiness. And you get to meet one of your heroes. Can you tell us about when you ran into Stephen Sondheim?
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Yes, I can. So I
1: this was the, the sort of first day of rehearsals for uh, Assassins at the Classic Stage Company. And, you know, I was not given like a whole lot of briefing or background. I think something I actually find in not just theater, it's almost every industry I've been a part of it, is that sometimes when you start as a real newbie, there's almost an assumption that there's just like a lot that you already know. And I rarely find that I know these things. And certainly in the case of my internship, there was so much guesswork involved. So I had really just been sent an email with a schedule for day one. And it had a number of different things on it, some acronyms I didn't know, like AEA. And so it said sort of like 11 o'clock meet and greet. I was like, perfect. That sounds like a time that I should show up because I had no idea what the things meant that were meant to be happening before. And so I, you know, this was like very important that I dressed appropriately. I agonized over what to wear because never worked in the theater. Didn't know were people going to be in sweatpants? Were they going to be in costumes? Like no idea. I go for jeans, a sweater, some boots with high heels. I leave early. I'm, I'm so, you know, I'm like, this is this is all going to go my way and I can't possibly be late. And of course, what happens? I like get on the wrong train. I miss the train I'm supposed to take. I'm flustered on the subway. It's too warm for what I'm wearing. So I'm sweating and I'm just like a hot mess going to this internship. I get out at Columbus Circle. I'm like rushing westward towards the rehearsal studio, which of course was not the theater, Christina. It was not the place that was in walking distance from my Airbnb because it was all the way across town. Why? Because productions don't get to rehearse in the theaters that they're in. I did not know this, but I learned it on the first day when I have to get on the subway and go all the way up to 60th Street. So, I'm just very flustered. I'm looking at my map, I'm looking at the time. I'm so worried about being late. I'm so nervous like the first day of school. And I bump into somebody outside the rehearsal room. I could he's an older man you know, I sort of jostle him. I step back. Oh, I'm so oh, I'm so sorry, sir. I'm so sorry. I did not mean to do that. I should have been watching where I was going. And as I look at him, it takes me like a couple seconds. And then I realize I have just bumped into 90-year-old Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> Completely recognizable, of course. I can't say anything else. I'm like flabbergasted. I'm just very glad I didn't knock him over. Can you imagine how that would have gone? Really much, much worse than it did. Um, And I just kind of stepped away and let him go on his way into the building. Now, we were going to the same room. So I then had to proceed to avoid him for like the next hour. But luckily, he was busy being sort of accoladed by everyone else in there. So I don't think he spotted me again.
0: And things are moving along. You're starting to figure out what you can and can't do to help as an intern. You're finding your way around. You're also navigating the fact that you're far away from your family and your dad doesn't quite understand why you've made this change in your life. Can you talk about the emotional world of making a decision like this?
1: Yeah, I I was, you know, I mean, the idea seemed so fantastical that there was a period where I wouldn't allow myself to take it seriously. It seemed like too good to be true. How could I, how, on what planet, could I actually set aside my responsibilities, even temporarily, and go off and do this thing for no other reason, except that I really, really wanted to do it. Was it going to lead to a career in theater? I mean, chances were not very likely that that was going to happen, you know, especially coming in for this short period as an intern and by the way, not living in New York city and having no experience, but you know, I, at the idea, I, sometimes I told people, oh yeah, I'm going to write a book about it because that was like a convenient excuse that made them think it was a project with a goal. And that somehow seemed more worthy, but you know, this, this, was like kind of a transgressive thing that I wanted to do to just up and leave my kids, leave my husband, even for a short period and pursue something that was really just about kind of scratching this personal and professional. itch for no other real reason. And so, you know, there was a lot of uh, kind of stakeholder management, if you will, that had to be done with my family. Um, you know, and you mentioned my, my parents, now my parents love musicals. So they were in general, excited about the opportunity to work on a musical, but the bigger picture, you know, it took some thinking for them to get around. And it is very, it's like the cornerstone of my life to never want to disappoint my parents. That has been one of my guiding decisions forever. And, you know, every decision that I had ever made had, I don't ever make a big decision without running it by my parents first. You know, my husband, Obviously, a lot of this was going to fall onto him in terms of responsibility that he would have to take for what was happening in the home, as well as what was going on in our business. And he needed to be up for that. And, you know, with him, I think at first the conversations were very focused on, you know, why is it that you don't want to do this thing that we built together anymore? And I think being slightly hurt by that, you know, I think he had been so proud of what we created together and that we had been able to live a life where we were working for ourselves, the idea that I wanted to sort of upend that was very scary to him. Um, And then of course it's going to involve me going away and him being with the kids and maintaining responsibility for all of the different things in our domestic life while I was off. So all of these were like big conversations that needed to happen with the people that were most important to me, you know, from a personal perspective. And then I was just terrified. I was terrified all the time. I would lie in bed thinking about what could go wrong. Was somebody going to get sick while I was away? Was somebody going to get hurt? What if somebody was rushed to the hospital? You know, I mean, obviously I think those were the things that were probably scary. What if I let everybody down? What if this is a huge failure? What if the business crumbles? What if this is the stupidest thing I've ever done? I mean, you know, the, the calling it my, what if year has this very, positive and forward thinking and, you know, exploratory, adventurous title. But the other side of what ifs is like anxiety, like what if all of these things go horribly wrong? And I was living both of them at the same time. So, you know, there was a lot of emotional turmoil. Once I was deciding this, once I was gone, you know, both in telling people, And close to me, not so close to me what I was doing and fear of their judgment. And also just that general fear of not being around to control everything the way I had been.
0: And to get where you were at the point that you were making the decision to take a what if year had been a person who planned, who thought through cause and effect, who considered, well, if I do this, will it really get me to the goal of that? You are a person who looked at what it would take to get into Harvard, who looked at what it would take to build a business and make a success out of it. And now you're trying to rely on a totally different set of skills, which is, I'm going to have to adapt. I'm going to have to you know, go with uncertainty. That's a scary thing in itself to try to embrace that side of ourselves.
1: Totally. I think there were all of these parts of my brain that had sort of atrophied all of these parts that i hadn't used for a really long time my part of my not just my brain my emotional health you know all of it and once i started kind of taking these small steps towards this project and then i actually got there i found myself very quickly having to rely on all of these faculties that i had kind of put to the side you know it was things like real, that real right-brained creativity and like being open to creative possibilities, not always thinking about what the ending was going to be when I was on the journey. That was like a really big deal because people kept wanting to know like, why, why are you, what, what do you want to come out of this? Why are you doing this? And as a person who had always had an answer for that, who had always figured out the, what I wanted at the end first, and then built everything around that to be doing something that didn't have an end game where maybe the end was that I was just going to feel better about everything in my normal life and more content and satisfied to be there. I was going to like go off and have this exploration. sow my wild professional oats and then come back, you know, that was one possible ending. Maybe I was going to make a career pivot into one of these fields. You know, maybe I was going to do one week of one internship and then come back home because I hated it and I didn't want to be part of it. I mean, I had no idea where this was going. And to actually let that part of me be running the show, not the goal-oriented, not the strategic planning part, you know, I can't even remember when before that I had used all of those faculties to get ahead. And it was very challenging. It was very, very challenging to let something else be the kind of driving force after an entire life, pretty much of always being that goal oriented person, you know, in, I think in large part, it was a lot of being very unable to imagine myself as any different from who I was. And I think that's something that's hard for a lot of people. You know, there were a lot of things that I just said, well, this is what I'm like, this is what I'm always going to be like. And when I started having to be in situations where I had to adapt I had to be flexible I didn't always know everything all the pieces of information I had to make a decision um you know all of a sudden I had to be this different person different than I had been before and it was scary and exciting and then once I could do it I was like wait a minute Maybe I don't have to be a person who always controls and plans everything. Maybe I could be a person who's more open to opportunities. You know, maybe I could be a person who doesn't know the end before I embark on the journey. And that was, it just like blew everything open for me.
0: There's a sense of moving from trusting the deadline that you've set or the deliverable that you've promised to trusting yourself.
1: That's such a great point.
0: And you're right. I think Trusting
1: that your intuition is going to lead you to something good. And also, not being afraid if you don't end up going where you meant to go and you go off a different path. And that sometimes that can be amazing and not just a horrible outcome, which is what I had been afraid of for a very long time.
0: We also have a sense when we do a thing or we try a thing that we're going to have to find the meaning very quickly or it won't have been worth it. And often, if you talk to your elders, your grandparents, whoever is a generation or two ahead of you who you have access to, they haven't figured out the meaning of something until 20 years later. And I see you in the book going back to your younger self, 20 years before, 25 years before, and finding meaning in things that you hadn't thought about in a long time as you are in this place of New York, and you haven't yet made meaning out of why you're there, what you're going to get out of it. And the larger backdrop is that you've left for this adventure on leap day of 2020. And all around are rumblings about a disease, a virus it doesn't necessarily have a name or a, a good clinical understanding of it. And what is it going to mean? And this sense that, we'll Broadway can't be affected because the show must go on. The show always goes on. And now Broadway has to go dark. Can you talk about this unbelievable thing becoming reality? Yeah.
1: I mean, I was absolutely in denial, right? I think a lot of
0: people were, frankly.
1: It just almost almost similar to what we were just talking about on a personal level, on this kind of macro global level. You know, I actually said to my husband, like, they're never going to close... They'll never close airports. Like, I'm never, he was very worried as things were starting to get progressively worse. And as countries in Europe were pulling kids out of school and shutting down, all of which happened before the UK did. You know, Ireland was doing it, Netherlands was doing it. All of these things were kind of ticking up, and there were all of these warning signs. But this future where we could not move freely around, whether that was outside of your own house or crossing a border, getting on a plane, I just could not fathom that was true. And I couldn't fathom that theaters would close down, you know, 9-11 Broadway closed for two days, I think. And that was it. And they were back open even during, I think like the Spanish flu of 18 theaters were closed for like a very 1918 theaters were closed for like a very short amount of time. And I was surrounded all day, every day by, people who were working towards the mounting of these productions that every single person in the room felt confident would open. So even though it shouldn't have been such a shock, it was a shock because, you know, I, I just think no one ever imagined a future that looked like what we ended up going through in 2020 and what the world looked like in 2020. It was like something out of some kind of dystopian novel. And, you know, so I am desperately trying to hold on to stay in New York as long as possible. Things are getting worse. And my in my head, my mantra was, you know, when theaters close or borders close, I'll have to go home. And, you know, very that had happened within almost like a 48 hour period from everything being status quo to Trump announcing they were closing all European flights and they were going to cancel flights moving forward after the following Friday. And then the following day, they announced that any gathering of over 500 people, which included all Broadway theaters, was going to be stopped. And so it happened. It felt like it happened very quickly, even though I'm sure you could argue now with hindsight that it was building up over a long, long time. And, you know, I even remember when I was in the office. So my last day I know I have to go home. They've announced that they are stopping flights. I have booked myself a flight home for that evening. Don't know what I'm coming back to or what's going to happen when I get home. And I decided to spend my last day of my internship in the offices of the classic stage company because they needed some help on filing. And I wanted to see the office. I wanted to be part of that kind of background. So I go into file and, you know, like out of some kind of movie, I'm sitting here with my stack of filing and someone is reading the news and all of a sudden Broadway's gone dark. They're closing theaters. I can't remember what the initial shutdown was going to be. It was going to be a few weeks, but even then, even then as like these productions that people have dropped millions and millions of dollars into mounting are going to be shut down with, you know, the drop of a hat, even in that office, everybody was still saying, well, our show isn't opening until after this, whatever it was two or three week period and we're not a broadway theater we only have a few hundred seats so we're going to be fine business as usual keep selling tickets nothing to be alarmed about so it was this very strange time as even stranger revisiting it to write about it even stranger revisiting it now you know a year plus after i finished the manuscript of the book to, to think back on how much denial we were all kind of in that any of this could happen because it had never happened before. And because we, you know, there was like no precedent for it. And even at the time thinking, this isn't going to go on that long. This isn't going to be what it was. I don't think anybody, even the most kind of pessimistic people had predicted an 18 month shutdown of Broadway, which is what happened.
0: You tell us right before the shutdown that year in a rehearsal, and John says, the point of theater is to remind us of who we are. Even though that internship didn't turn out the way that you expected it to, the way that anyone would have hoped for, no one hopes for a pandemic or all of the pain that comes out of that, what were some of the things this internship reminded you about who you were?
1: It sort of laid all of these seeds that have then sprouted up through the rest of the year. And since, you know, even now, sometimes I was just in New York, um, last week and I got to go see a couple shows and, you know, it's just like, it, it's, it reminded me that so many things, I mean, let's, let's narrow it down. I think that one of the first things it did for me is it showed me that there was that I could do this, right? I had this idea, could I actually get out of my profession? Could I do something different? Could I try something entirely new? Could I experience life as an intern and live to tell the tale? And even though my internship in New York was cut short, I did that, I did it. I left the world, I guess you could argue, sort of did fall apart, but my family was okay. And you know, our little tiny microcosm of the world didn't fall apart because I had left. And so it gave me the confidence to continue on with what then became three more internships because I had done one. And after I'd done one, I thought I could do another one. Even when I was feeling like this is never going to be able to happen because we're all in the midst of this like horrific lockdown and we can't leave the house. So that was one thing. It reminded me how much I loved the theater and really forced me to ask myself why, I was not spending more time, didn't even need to be like professional time, but more time in my life doing this thing that I had loved so much forever, that brought me so much joy, that made me feel like I couldn't wait to get up in the morning to go and see what was gonna happen the next day. And that had not been a feeling I had been feeling in my professional life for some time. And it reminded me, oh, I can feel this, this is still there. I can feel this and what else, what else have I put beside and left, you know, because I was pursuing whatever goal I thought I needed to pursue. What are the other things that have brought me all of this joy and happiness that I maybe should be doing more of again, maybe as a job, maybe as a hobby, maybe as a side hustle, who knows, but why had I excised these things from my life that had brought me so much joy because they weren't productive or practical or I was too busy or whatever it was. And, you know, then there was an element that I think I really only reflected on much later in the process of writing the book and then thinking about it. And I was even just, again, thinking about it when I was in New York last week watching these shows. And, you know, theater performers are so extraordinary in that they have to put their entire self on stage, into a role, you cannot be a good actor if you are worried about embarrassing yourself or looking dumb or messing up or failing, you know, even the best actors get rejected from roles all the time. And yet they do it. They do it because they love it. They do it for the idea of using their bodies and their minds and their souls to make art. And I had been so, why did I care so much about all of these things that whether i you know did something well or whether i failed at it why was i so afraid to put myself out there in that really full whole being way that performers do and watching them do that in rehearsal room day after day moment after moment was a real wow for me wow this is not everybody lives their life in this very safe way with a guaranteed you know, route to success. A lot of people do not do that. And they are very fulfilled in different ways by living a life like that. And maybe I should be bringing part of that into my life too.
0: In the book, you take us to one of the moments you just described where you're watching these performers and you're thinking about it. And you say, I made safe choices. The ones that didn't cause me to fear my heart would get trampled if I left it out on the stage. That passage reminded me of earlier in the book when you were in high school and you gave up your love of theater because in high school that was really the bottom of the pecking order. And now adult you is seeing a totally different way of calculating the risk of what that means to take that emotional plunge and to be out there and to do this work. How did the next three internships combine with this one lead to the different takeaways that you give us in the conclusion of the book.
1: Mm. It's, it's really funny. You know, I, last week while I was in New York, I was invited to speak at a high school, um, which was the first of those kinds of speaking engagements that I have done with, at least with a group of people that young. And I was talking to them about my book. And of course, you know, for them, 40 is like so old. I'm basically the same age as their parents, but they were really engaged. And one of the students asked me, do you have any regrets? And that question like really took me aback because I said to her, no, you know, I try not to live a life of regret because I think you never know where a choice is going to lead you. And I had done all of these things in the past maybe I wouldn't have ended up where I am now talking to you so I try not to be regretful but that you're mentioning that moment it reminds me of an instance that I meant I I mentioned briefly in the book but I don't I didn't really talk about in the book which is that um in college I decided my house was putting on a musical like my my college dorm and they were putting on Guys and Dolls which is a musical i have always loved and i the part of Adelaide is like a dream part now i've never acted but i, I you know i have sung so i was like god it would be so amazing to play adelaide and um i i almost like purposefully through the audition i went out the night before i didn't rest i didn't really practice i didn't do anything that would have really helped me be successful in getting the part. And then guess what? I didn't get the part. And when I didn't get the part, I said to myself, Oh, well, you know, my throat was like, not at a hundred percent. I had been going out drinking the night before. I was really tired that day and I didn't practice that much. So, you know, it's, it's understandable. I didn't get the part. I ended up playing hot box girl number two, which was a non speaking part, but I got to like prance around in a blue sequin dress. And Uh, now that you've mentioned that I'm thinking about that moment because I think I did that so much in my life. I would, I, I was so afraid of putting my whole heart into something and being rejected that I, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't do it at all. And I chose these safe routes and taking this year, doing these four internships, having these experiences where there was no guaranteed pathway to success, where You know, my internship at Kinluck Lodge, which is this beautiful hotel and restaurant on the Isle of Skye where I am now, you know, I'm waitressing and I'm checking people in and out and I am terrible at it. And I spent weeks there and I was no better when I came out than when I had started. I did not improve. I was not good at it. One of the biggest learnings for me from all of these internships was that I had been playing it too safe and I had been very afraid of failure for pretty much my entire life. And what that had done was stop me from pursuing things that might have taken me in directions I never could have imagined because I was so afraid of failing. And I did these internships and I failed a lot. I failed over and over again at every single one of them. And the world did not come crumbling down and everything did not fall apart. And I actually had these incredible growth experiences coming out of those failures. And so that was huge. You know, there was a lot else that I learned. I certainly learned about making sure I was reconnecting with joy. I realized through my internships that, you know, as I'm doing these new things, I'm learning every day. And I had not really put learning at the center of my professional goals before, but I I did, I was really turned on by that. I wanted to be learning all of the time and I needed to be able to learn more. I needed to adapt and be flexible, but really stopping being so afraid of failure and trying to lean into the uncomfortable places to do the things that I was scared of and to do them with 110% effort, because if I failed, it would not be the end of the world. And at least I tried was probably the biggest kind of aha moment that came out of the whole experience for me.
0: You've talked about being a planner and thinking about writing a second book. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking the second book is maybe called There's No Spreadsheet for This. (laughs) I actually
1: have an essay that I'm working on that's called Your Spreadsheet Will Not Save You because like 100%. (laughs) Well,
0: I would like to read that essay. Towards the very end of the book, on page 253, you said change is hard. And sometimes I take a quote out of different books that I'm um, interviewing the author about. And this is a quote that is going up on the wall. (laughs) I think it's the thing that we don't really give enough value to the truth of. Change is hard. It's not a reason not to change. It's the truth of it.
1: It is, it is so hard and it is why people avoid it, you know, why people are afraid of it. And I think sometimes when you hear stories, or at least I can't speak for everybody, but when I had heard stories of people who made a major career pivot or who had made a big change in their life, you kind of hear those stories when whatever they did was like super successful. So it almost sounds like it was inevitable. Yes, I was a doctor. But I always wanted to be a stand up comedian and I made this change, and now I'm this incredibly successful stand up comedian. But the actual point of making a change, all of the things you have to leave behind to leap into an unknown is terrifying and very hard and often involves making sacrifices and disappointing people and bringing yourself back to a point of failure, maybe when you were at a point of success. And so I can see why. A lot of people don't change. It's not because they don't want to change. I've been meeting people through the last two months since the book came out across book tour all around the country who have said to me, I'm at this moment in my life, especially people around my age, not exclusively, but a lot of women. I want I need I need to make a change. I want to make a change. There are so many people that are sitting there. And I think it's important for people to know that it's not easy and that yes, the the reward of doing it can be extraordinary. But the during part, you know, it's, it's not necessarily going to be a total piece of cake. And that's okay. Like, let's just acknowledge that that's the case. And again, exactly as you said, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. But it does
0: mean you shouldn't expect it to be easy. And no one will play the musical montage for you.
1: Yeah. You don't get the like fun shopping spree montage in real life. You only do that after when you're looking back and reflecting on it and you're like, blah, blah, blah. And then I went perfectly into my new profession and everything I lived happily ever after.
0: What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners?
1: I Well, obviously I hope people are interested in reading my book. That's probably the first thing that would be really nice if they decided they wanted to read it. Um, You know, I think that these questions, the what if question, the what else question, they had existed inside of me for a long time before I actually decided to address them. And I suspect that many of your listeners are listening to this and those questions are inside of them as well. And I hope that listening to this episode forces them to interrogate those questions and to maybe give them a little bit of space to give them an audience And to listen to them, even when they are scary, because they are probably there. And I would love if people listened to this and felt less afraid of letting those voices come to the fore and of really questioning. What if I did something different? What if I tried this thing I was afraid of? What if I pursued this thing I've always wanted to do and never have done? If it inspires people to think about that, to ask those questions, then I will consider myself to have done my job.
0: Thank you so much for being here today, Alicia Fernandez Miranda, and telling us about your new book, My What If Year. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. This is the Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.